When the world is ruled by violence and the soul of mankind fades, the children's path shall be darkened by the shadows of the neon maniacs. Episode 5, Paula, The Slasher, and The Production Shutdown. Welcome to Episode 5 of In the Shadows of the Neon Maniacs. This week, we'll focus on the fan-favorite character of Paula, who was portrayed by Donna Locke in the film. And we'll talk to Joel Stephen Hammond, who played the maniac slasher. And we'll also discuss the production shutdown. My name is Patrick Bromley. I wrote the article Neon Maniacs, an underrated gem that deserved so many sequels on bloodydisgusting.com. I'm always a fan, whether it's the kids in Monster Squad or Tommy Jarvis in Friday 13th 4 or even the little brother in the fun house. Like I love a horror movie that includes a monster kid and neon maniacs has one of my favorite monster kids in Paula. Mark Patrick Carducci tells Fangoria. I always wanted to do a movie where a little kid who is into fantasy into monster movies was the real catalyst. It's like David slaying Goliath. He's just a little kid. Well, my name is Jim Ruland. I'm a writer in San Diego, and my connection to Neon Maniacs is personal. My cousin, Mark Patrick Carducci, wrote the film. Another thing that was changed from the original script is Paula, the protagonist of the movie, who is the one who suspects that there are monsters loose in San Francisco. That was originally a male character that was based completely on Mark. Um, Paula is somebody who really loves monsters and monster movies. And that was my cousin. Paula was a filmmaker who would gather up neighborhood kids to tell these stories. My cousin also did that. So it's another factor for it being an extremely autobiographical movie. My name is Gary Gerani. I'm a, uh, a writer of fiction and nonfiction. This was Mark's personal story. The little girl in the story was originally a boy. That was him. Who was Paul originally, right? You know, so the whole thing was autobiographical in a crazy way. I'm Armando Munoz, a former friend of Neon Maniacs writer, Mark Patrick Carducci. And this totally changed my viewing of it. I'm surprised I didn't notice these things before. But talking to Jim and rewatching the movie was like, oh, okay, there we go. That character of Paula was definitely his surrogate. 
And so you can really now look at Paula in the movie. And I think it was the studio who, who wanted that gender change. But I, now I can much more see how that is Mark in many ways. You know, the white-eyed innocent who loves the monsters and isn't that afraid and, and steps up, you know, when everyone else isn't. And that, that was a, it's a great thing to see. I was surprised there's nothing out there on Donna. I looked, I was, I wanted to find her too. Like, cause she's, of all of them, she fascinated me the most. I think there was a probably irritation on Mark's part with the, well, I don't know if maybe not on Mark's part, but on certain audience members parts, I should say that she appears to be about a decade older than the character she's playing. But, you know, I can look past that. I find her actually very endearing. Um, I always did. And now I'm thinking, did I always see Mark in her? And that was a part of my, of the appeal of the character. And certainly of the three, I find Paula my favorite. Paula, it's way past bedtime. Okay, Ma, I was just testing the makeup for tomorrow's shoot. My name is Timothy Snell and I edited Neon Maniacs. Joe was in the editing room a bit, and he even did a little editing. We had an upright, we had a couple uprights in the camp, just because I needed help with handling all the footage. Or because there's a whole scene where she's like playing with a monster, with a, a toy, a puppet or something, in the beginning, right? Well, she puts her hand in a mask. Isn't that the beginning? Yeah, that is somewhat, that's yeah. her introduction. The scene that Joe cut was the scene with Paula and the puppet in the hand. I had to give him something to do, so he cut that scene. No, give me back my hand! Ah! Bad ducky. Jim Branscombe, Cinematic Boy. You know, Paula, played by Donna Locke, who was probably one of the all-time great monster kids in a horror movie, she's going to shoot her own horror movie in the cemetery. I know... Just based on the geography, they shot at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. And the main reason I know that is because you can see the Paramount Pictures water tower in the background. And like that, you know, if you've ever been to Hollywood Forever, it's like right up against the back lot of Paramount. And like they just kind of ride their bikes through and they like, I think it's a scene where she's shooting like a vampire attacking someone kind of thing. And it's like really, really brief. Like, it's not like it's a lot of screen time, but it's a really cool thing because it's like character developing. You got to kind of get into Paula's world a lot and you get to see her in her element. She just wants to make films. And it's like, that's kind of the thing I love about Neon Maniacs is that it feels like it's a movie made by people who love horror movies. I'm Dr. Rebecca McHenry. My core area of research is in horror film history the female horror fan like that did not scream to me as a teenager in the 90s but now seeing a female horror fan portrayed in a film in the 1980s the mid 1980s that's huge like you see it in like morgan stewart's coming home and this otherwise we did not see that obsessive female horror fandom that i was and it was striking me that this did not smack me over the head as a teenager because this is exactly the life i was living where i had masks on my wall and posters and was making my own films. You're late. You're a great producer. It's not my fault. John's mom made us take his sister to dance class. John, Wendy has your fangs. Why don't you go try them on? Wendy, you ready? John, take your position over by the headstone. 
Okay. And action. Dennis Fisher writes in Fangoria, Paula, the little girl who is into videotaping her own homemade horror movies, hears about Natalie from one of her friends, and she tries to contact her. Excuse me, are you Natalie Lawrence? Yes. Could I talk to you about last night? What do you know about last night? Hardly anything. See, that's why I want to talk to you. I'm really interested hey, look, in kid, finding out. Why don't you go back to Sesame Street? But I just want to find out. Hey, can't you see she doesn't want to talk? Come on, now, let's go to class. But Natalie's girlfriend keeps her away. Paula decides to investigate and goes to the scene of the van attack where the police are hoisting away the van and conducting their investigation. She finds a trail of slime and follows it through the woods until she comes to the Golden Gate Bridge, which she somehow senses is the place from which the maniacs originate. She goes back that night with a videotape camera and witnesses the maniacs coming out of the bridge and puts them on tape. She sees a maniac slip and fall into a puddle of water. And like the Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz, the maniac's hand starts to rot and dissolve. However, the maniac looks up and sees her in the bushes, and soon the chase is on. Maniac number seven, Slasher. I'm Joel Stephen, also known as Joel Stephen Hammond, and I played Slasher. First of all, what led me to it, I guess it was a call in Backstage West. They asked me to come in for Ape Man was the character. And I, they had no descriptions past anything else. So I thought, well, all right. I grabbed a mohair vest that I bought in, uh, in uh, Hollywood. I put that on. I didn't shave for a couple of days, so I was kind of scruffy. I did my hair, which always looks like this. So I even made it worse. And uh, then I came in and I sat in the lobby and I glared at everybody. I, I gave them my uh, picture resume, but I didn't really say a word to anyone. I just kind of glared at them. And what was weird was uh, the room was filled with all these docker pants, IZOD shirt wearing actor boys talking about who they're studying with and stuff. And I'm just the guy in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> glaring at everyone and finally they bring me in and they ask me a few questions and I'm still doing the act and they said you know you you can cut that now and I'm, all right all right I'm back to human hi I'm Joel and they said yeah we'd like you to do this do that I don't even remember the audition but then they called me and said we'd like you to play slasher I had no idea what that meant they never gave any of us a script none of the monsters ever had a script uh, but hey, I get to be a monster. And the first thing was, we need to send you down, get your makeup done. So uh, he sent us down, I forgot the name that Alan Opone did, uh, the name of his company, but I went down there. They did the face mask of me. If anyone ever sees a movie where they're using something where they made a face mask, whether that's a little kid or an old man, they all went through the same process that I did. Let me tell you, it's an experience. Uh, when they plaster you up, they warn you it's human nature. You're going to freak out a little bit, uh, like you're being buried alive. And they're right. <laughs> you do. <laughs> so straws up your nose. As soon as they put that cold clay on and you feel like you're literally, you start, your heart starts racing. You get a little zen with it. And you just wait for it to set. And they take it off. They make the whole thing out of that. If you've ever seen face off in the makeup shows, you know how that's done. And in my case, it's a pretty large a bus they had to make. I had an eight and three quarters size hat size, so that, that was probably a massive size uh, uh, bus uh, they had to make the uh, mask out of. 
in the makeup, because of the way that Slasher dies, they have to anticipate that I'm going to ooze and spew steam or whatever. So they have tubes under the makeup on the face and then in my hand as well. And uh, a couple of one place on my face, one on top of my head, one out of my hand, two tubes, one with the water that would be the mist being the steam. And then the other would be the goo, which is me melting. Uh, same color, just some goo. My name is Catherine Ballin. I was the production designer on um, Neon Maniacs. The bedroom of Paula, this little girl was actually, I think between 25 and 27 years old, but so thin with a little teeny voice and she was playing that 12 years old girl, but she was not a kid at all. The location, because this was a low budget, uh, sets cost more money than to dress a location. They, they got as many locations as they could. And for Paula's house, we had then what we call a practical location. So when we started uh, dressing the location for Paula, I had the bedroom. The bedroom was a very important uh, scene, many important scene in the bedroom for this character and for the film. And I was very frustrated with the bedroom in this house because it was very um, forgettable. You know, a little square, teeny room, first of all, it's not easy for the crew because you have walls everywhere. Unlike a set, you can't push them. So you're very restricted, there's very little you can do. And there was, I had no feel at all. There was, I said, what can I do? This is so dull, so restricted. So I, I had an idea and I went to see the director and I told him, I said, look, those bedrooms, this is not, I, I don't like it at all. What about if this young girl that is a little strange, you know, she's into filming at 12, 12 years old and she's into uh, film and, and horror film and all that. She's got a lot of imagination, you know, very overactive and she's an unusual kid. So I think she should not have an ordinary room. There is in this house, an interesting attic. It's very dark, it's very, you know, all that, but we could dress that and make that her room, which would give it a, a more interesting texture, color, more room, and it would add to uh, the psychology of, of this character. And uh, he loved it, and I think it, it, it worked in that way, which is why my dear Matt had to build a bathroom in a rush, uh, in, in a very short time, and then he did a good job. My name is Nat Bocking, and I was the assistant art director on Neon Maniacs. It was a very quick you know, production. I, I, if I remember correctly, I think when I met Katrine, we basically had about a week before of prep you know, to get things done. The first thing we did was dressing the house. Paula, I think is the character, you know, Donna Locke, the main, the main, the video maker, the horror, the horror buff. So we did her house. This, well, this was a house, it was in Glendale. It was very near the Glendale library, you know, the very kind of ornate building that's in Glendale. And it was a large, large craftsman house, but apparently it was going to be, you know, demolished and rebuilt or something. And that's why we could film in it. Uh, and 
pretty much do as we pleased to to the house it wasn't it wasn't lived in when we were when we were filming there it wasn't you know like a, there was a homeowner who was very precious about everything and i know that we we dressed up in the attic and you know we filmed in the kitchen and stuff like that they they wanted a bathroom from the main girl's bedroom they wanted to see a bathroom through a door and there was no bathroom there and uh, it was you know really important that you know she had to come out of that door for some reason i think there was going to be blood and stuff in there or something like that there was another reason it had to, had to be a bathroom so i i had a cube van I knew this from my AFI experience, that if you drove down Western Avenue, there were lots of carpet shops and furniture shops along Western Avenue. And in their alley, you know, in the dumpsters behind, there'd be like stuff they'd taken in trade uh, or they'd ripped out of something. And I drove down there and literally within half an hour, I'd found a bathroom suite. I found a bathtub, a pedestal sink, a, a toilet <laughs> and everything and I pulled it and threw it in the truck and I found some carpet I scrounged some wood and you know literally went back to Glendale and we built flats and we kind of hot glued everything together so that when you open the door it looked like a bathroom but it was it was literally made out of cardboard and, and, and scrap I mean things like the tile was just really sharpie you know drawn on the wall you know and stuff like that you know <laughs> it was that kind of job you know but it worked you know and that was like and that was done sort of overnight and so many things like that were done uh, but I can't remember all of them but you know it's that sort of crazy uh, fly by night you know run a, run and gun filmmaking where they say, oh, we need both. Right, yeah, we, we can do that. And we can do it with no money. <laughs> so. Slasher's death. It's night, and Paula is in her bed as the slasher ascends the stairs towards her attic bedroom. As Slasher approaches, Paula, seemingly asleep, is actually prepared for such an encounter. The moment Slasher raises his knife, signaling impending danger, Paula's response subverts typical horror tropes. Instead of succumbing to fear, she grabs a crucifix, a common symbol of protection in horror narratives. The crucifix proves ineffective against Slasher. Resourcefully, Paula then resorts to a water pistol hidden under her pillow. When she squirts Slasher in the face, an unexpected reaction occurs. His face emits steam. Escalating her defense, Paula then uses a bucket of water, preemptively placed beside her bed. This causes more intense steaming and smoking from Slasher's body, indicating a severe vulnerability to water. The scene climaxes with Slasher stumbling back into the bathroom and falling into the bathtub. Paula's quick thinking to turn on the shower further exposes Slasher's weakness, leading to his disintegration. We get up there, and even though the scene is just me and my intended victim, the young girl, who's actually like 24 years old, <laughs> you know, playing 15 or whatever she is. As soon as, yeah, and really, I think we're about the same age, by the way. 
<laughs> the, the little girl and the monster are about the same age. Then we get up there, and what's funny is when you see that scene, the room is empty except for the two of us. No, it is not. The room is filled with people. This is not a set where they can take out walls and make space. So they just had to cram everyone into this attic. You've got your director, your cinematographer, your boom mic people. You've got a two or three people running my ooze and special effects. And I mean, I'm literally tripping over wires and people as I'm coming in to the room and, and moving across to her. One of the things in horror film, being a movie buff myself, that has always bothered me is the way monsters move. Slow is supposed to be threatening, I guess. I'm Frankenstein. I am the mummy. I'm coming toward you. So I thought, I know I'm going to get the direction. Again, no script, nothing but we're going to come upstairs. He'll tell you what to do when you get up there. Okay. So I know he's going to tell me to move slow. I do. It's a monster. So I'm, I'm trying to think, hey, what's my motivation for moving slow? And also, could I add something else in there? And I looked at my costume and I'm wearing boots, which I don't know if it even shows on camera anywhere. Uh, I don't know if we ever shoot that low on me, but I am wearing military style boots. So what I did was I unlaced one of them and stepped down in it halfway so that it looks like my leg is snapped at the ankle and I'm dragging it. So as I'm approaching her, I'm actually step, shoot step shoot step shoot which created a really cool sound effect you know which sounds a little ominous gave me a little physical motivation for being slow but you did this to me or someone else did and i'm taking it out on you or whatever but this hurts even a monster this hurts so so that was that was something i did and then after we it wasn't until after we did the first take when the director said that thing with the foot did you do that i go yeah he goes great i love it no direction whatsoever, I'm telling you. And uh, so we did the scene where I'm approaching her, and then the scene where she takes a squirt gun uh, from me next to the bed, and of course a bucket of water. She hits me with a squirt gun. That's where we have the ooze effects that happen first. And when you know I'm stymied by that, she hits me with the bucket of water, which supposedly knocks me all the way back into the bathroom. I believe you or someone was telling me a story about how those bath that bathroom was not a real bath. It, it was because we're in an attic. So it's so but I do remember they said don't fall in it. Because <laughs> apparently it wasn't really attached. So yeah, that probably would have been in there. So they said don't fall in it, but I had to pretend like I was headed toward it. And then what you see in the tub is the cotton candy slasher that gets uh, melted. Hi, I'm Alan Apone, the makeup effects department head and owner of Makeup and Effects Laboratories. I'm Mike Spatola, makeup artist, uh, instructor at Cinema Makeup School. Do you remember anything about Slasher? I don't remember Slasher. He had that great death scene in a bathtub. Oh, oh yeah, the spun glucose. Oh, the spun glucose, oh, that's right. <laughs> oh, you gotta tell the story, tell the story. This, oh, this is so, one of my favorite stories. <laughs> so there's the scene where he dissolves, right? And they want to see it on camera. And, you know, we're not talking like, you know, millions of dollars worth of makeup budget here. So we tried to figure out a way that we could have water hit it and it dissolve. And it was Alan's idea to come up with this, to, to, 
to use this product that we, we used. And um, obviously we don't want to call it what it is because it sounds funny to be using cotton candy pressed into the mold. So Ellen named it Spun Glucose. <laughs> and we also used, um, uh, what are those? Magnesium or some of, what is it that material, mineral that hits the water and like yeah, bubbles? Magnesium, uh, magnesium crystals. Yeah. So that added to the effect. And, um, but basically the, the cotton candy was pressed into the mold. So it would have the shape of the, of the character's head. But when the water hit it, it would just kind of disintegrate because that's what happens with cotton candy. Right. And we painted it. We had with rubber cement paint, which kind of held it together a little bit, but it still dissolved. But, but we had a great time with the whole spun glucose thing. <laughs> it was, it was just, Michael and I must have laughed for hours when we, when, we, when we did the test. So we did a test on an arm mold to see if it would work. <laughs> and we were like in heaven. Because it was just like, well, how the hell do you make that work? I mean, it's just like... <laughs> You know, and when it worked, it was just like, it was great. And then Mike painted it. And the, like they, every, I really thought that something big would become of that because like <laughs> everybody was impressed that, that we put that together in no time. With no money. <laughs> With no money. I mean, it was, it, it was just cool. You know, to me, it was just like really one of the, the funnest things. <laughs> Yes, I'd, I'd like to thank the members of the Academy and Spun Glucose for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was a lot of movies doing sort of dissolvings and swellings and, you know, fun stuff, but they have much bigger budgets than we had. We had nothing. Yeah, it's like and, in Raiders of the Lost Ark where they did the melting faces with freaking blow torches and wax layered characters and stuff. Mm -hmm. A lot of money to do that stuff. Yeah. You get anything. <laughs> My name is Sean Robert and I had the opportunity to design and write the Neon Maniacs trading cards for Terror Vision Records. So again, for the budget this movie had, for the time that they had and everything, when they needed to get down to brass tacks and really do some gore or some fun stuff, like they went all out. And one of my favorite sequences is when Paula figures out the weaknesses of the maniacs. Uh, at least she's, she's got a good, pretty good idea that the weakness of the maniacs is water. And when Slasher comes to, to attack her in her room, and she she squirts him with the squirt and realizes it's working and then you know pours the bucket of water on him. I love that this it goes to the perfect conclusion of how are you gonna deal with a maniac that's attacking you that's vulnerable for water is you you force him into the bathroom, put him in the tub, and turn the shower on. <laughs> And it's grisly and it's gross and it's nasty and it's crazy because it is the scene from lost boys when the frog brothers take down oh man was it uh 
Jeez, I can't remember the vampire's name. But they take down the vampire in the bathtub. Garlic <laughs> don't work, boys! Try holy water, death breath! <laughs> I love connections like that in movies too, where you have very similar sequences that are maybe like a year apart or something. And it just makes you wonder like, no, because you're so right. I didn't think about that. That is before lost boys, the bathtub scene. Totally. Yeah. And it, and it's, and it has, and it deals with squirt guns and the, the garlic that doesn't work. You know, she's got a string of garlic around her neck. Cause she's assuming maybe some of them are vampires. I don't know. I'm Megan Navarro, lead critic and writer for bloody disgusting. You don't see, you know, Paula's, I'm guessing probably like freshman age, 14 year old. She is literally like Corey Feldman's character in Friday the 13th, the final chapter where she is a huge horror fan. So the horror fan who happens to be a girl, which was definitely kind of closer to my age, like that's a little bit role modely for people like me. She she slept with a water gun under her pillow. She came prepared. That's that's a horror <laughs> fan thing. That's just like catnip for, for horror fans, you know, like the the horror fan figuring it out and saving the day. You know, it's called Neon Maniacs and the history behind that is fascinating, but then having these two very different female protagonists is is very different, you know, coming to it from a female horror fan perspective. Obviously, I've I've been a monster kid since way way too young renting horror movies from the video store and it was all I think it started for me with like Ghostbusters at age four. And then from there, I just wanted everything monster related. So I already saw a kindred spirit in Paula. I mean, when I watched this, she was probably a, a bit older than I was, but you don't see that. I think I had read somewhere that they had originally envisioned or written Paula to be a boy and probably like Paul or something. But uh, I love that she wasn't. There were, you know, I think at the time there weren't a whole lot of you know, women horror fans like Paula. And she was just so gung-ho. It's, they never really quite latched on to Natalie being, you know, a virgin and that's why she's a target. But Paula for sure was the quick-witted one to figure out what their weakness was and to exploit that. And so you just have this arty inherent hero for monster kids like me. So, so there's the tr there's a trope in horror films that I that I adore, and it's the character that knows that they're in a horror film. And Paula is this for Neon Maniacs. It's again, this none of this is explicit, but I feel like a big influence on her character in this scene was Corey Feldman's character from Friday the Thirteenth Part Four, where you have this character who loves horror movies and he's making horror masks and he's got all these horror toys in his room. But he's so into the idea of horror and he's like, he's aware, he's self-aware enough that like when it comes off for him to, to face off against Jason, like he figures out a way to break into Jason's psyche and to, to crack him. And that's what Paula is in this movie. Like she's that character that is so versed in horror stuff. You know, she's got Gremlins posters and Blade Runner posters in her room. She's wearing a Nostromo hat from Aliens. And like, as soon as she actually finally sees these maniacs and sees how crazy they are, like she, she goes home and she starts making this insane list of like ways to kill monsters. And like, again, this is stuff that pops up in, 
and monster squad with this character that are, you know, you've got this whole group of characters that are just like so keyed in. And I, I love this idea of, of someone who's prepared. Again, the, these characters that pop up in movies, uh, Jamie Kennedy and Scream. I don't know. It's whenever it happens, it's always a fun time. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you, you nailed it with all that with with Tommy in the final chapter and her because there are, there are such crazy parallels between them. You're right. It's great. Yeah, no, totally. They're so similar like that. She's testing her effects while he makes masks. Mm-hmm. But, but she's more of a filmmaker. You're right. And they both investigate their killers. And what's mm-hmm. really crazy, because I, I was like, there's not a lot of, not a lot out there on Slasher. So I was really like studying him. And what I started figuring out was Slasher is Jason, if you really think about it, because yeah. he wears the same attire that Jason wears in Friday 13th Part 2. Jason wears a plaid, Jason wears a plaid blue button-up shirt and overalls. Slasher mm-hmm. wears an orange button-up plaid shirt and overalls. And if you look at if you if you put Slasher's face and Jason's from the final chapter together side by side, some similarities there. So in a weird way, Tommy mm-hmm. and Paula are both facing off against Jason in, in one way. It's really interesting. If you're making the ultimate, if you want the ultimate slasher, it makes sense to be inspired by Jason. Jason, yeah. You know, because they're not, I'm shocked they didn't put him in a mask, but they, they mm-hmm. went away from that and they were actually showing his face. You know, they yeah. could have got away with a mask would have probably been easier <laughs> for the effects artist, but they went all in. The actress who played uh, Paula, do you remember her? The the little girl who was not a little girl. She was like 30 or something. The one I had a crush on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you never did anything. She What's never, that? She never went on to do anything after that. Jim Branscombe, Cinematic Void. It, it seems weird because like, you know, obviously Donna Locke kind of, this was the only movie she did, I think pretty sure and then she just kind of disappeared which seems kind of weird because like you would think even though whatever happened in the movie with its production and all that like someone had to see neon maniacs be like you know we need that you know horror kids or like you know kid actors in horror movies like should have been in abundance i just don't understand why she didn't do more after that and like kind of vanished but i guess like for a lot of people in that movie, they just either vanished or like decided to never speak of this movie again. You guys shot and then it kind of went on hiatus and then it picked up again. Run out of money. <laughs> Which happened a lot in low budget film. It's not the last, the only one I did where this happened. I mean, in the 80s and even now, I mean, film is a very expensive hobby. And, uh, you know, sometimes people start it with a lot of enthusiasm and they run out of fuel in midstream, so. My name is Barry Buchanan and I played the Archer. So I remember the first night I was leaving even, uh, I was heading for my car and somebody said, oh, you better make sure you get paid. And I went, what? They said, yeah, yeah, you better get a check because, uh, you know, some of the people in this ca- uh, the crew or something haven't been paid. And I went, what? And so I, I, I think I made a habit. I think as I remember, there was a guy actually like, and I'm not sure because I was doing some other things too, but I think he was writing the checks. 
to people like right there, like on a clipboard or something. And you get your name and you'd get a check for the night or something like that. It was it was kind of strange. But anyway, I, I I don't know exactly what the budget of the film was, but people were saying that like like sometimes I would show up and somebody hadn't been paid either the gaffer, the you know, or a grid. Somebody hadn't been paid and they didn't show up that night. They said, oh, we can't do the shoot without them. Uh, come back tomorrow night. Hi, I'm Matt Asner, and uh, I played the character of Stringbean. We were scheduled to do two nights, and we did the first night, and something bad happened, I remember. <laughs> I think, I'm not sure what happened, but I think I heard, I caught wind of it, I think, from what I remember, there was an issue with payment to the crew. And so a scene that really should have taken one or two days ended up stretching out over six weeks. And that was, uh, that was kind of weird. But I think, I think it was definitely related to payment to the crew. And, um, and I think basically what happened was the crew said, well, okay, we're not gonna show up for work. And there was a little bit of a revolt, mutiny on the crew. And I'm not, I'm not even sure how they solved it, but I guess they solved it and we all went back to work, so. My name is Christopher Greenwood and I was a third electrician. So I remember when they had to stop production because they kind of ran out of money and we actually showed up to work and we we're like, the grip truck wasn't there. And we're like, okay, where's the stuff? <laughs> well, that's a long story. <laughs> Well, okay, we got all night. <laughs> the, the producer came up and all and got us all together. And we were down by the driving range at Griffith Park, you know, golf balls, you know. And um, it was earlier, you know, like right before we started shooting. And he said, well, we're not going to shoot and uh, because we just have to shut down production for a while to raise more money. And so, but the kind of the funny thing of that whole thing was, I think, people were trying to hit us with golf balls <laughs> because as he was trying to be real serious and tell us this sad story, we were dodging golf balls. I mean, they were like whizzing by our heads and stuff like that. And we were all, you know, ducking and it was crazy. So, <laughs> but the, the golf ball thing was almost comic relief because you're like thinking, Oh, this guy this sucks, man. Are we going to get paid? Whatever you're thinking that. And then all of a sudden you see, you watch him dancing and like dodging the golf balls. Cause he can see them coming and we can't, you know, we're looking at him. He's looking at us and he's like, Whoa. <laughs> the reason we, the reason the movie ran out of money is I have no idea because there was no particular incident or anything. There was no problem. You know, it's one thing if, if something breaks or you lose a location or something, or, you know, the, you just, star diva demands or something but it was just like oh no the the, the checks are bouncing but we're carrying on shooting <laughs> which i think is slightly you know it's slightly unethical but there you go that's hollywood there was quite a lot of um you know hollywood is sort of then and still is very much divided into the independent and the kind of union work and uh you know there was sort of there was good quality independence and then there was the low low budget you know poverty row type stuff and um you know and obviously this film was one of those things but you know you're i i, I basically had like you know i had no major film credits to my name um except you know except doing these short um, usc and afi films so 
for me, it was like any job, you know, that sounded like a proper movie, um, you know, was, was, was I, I thought I was really, really pleased to be working on it, you know, and especially when I met Katrine and got along well with her. But... Um, Oh, so you want me to introduce myself? Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, so I'm Mark Headley, my official title, line producer, you know, taking care of all the logistics and everything. I was promised a producer credit, but that never happened. And uh, unfortunately, that's the business. So. And uh, like so many films, uh, ran out of money. So I had to sign on to another project. And uh, Stephen Mackler pretty much uh, wrangled, you know, additional funding and uh, started back up and uh, uh, credit to Stephen, you know, he was able to finish the picture. Oh, wow. So you were part of the first set of shooting. Up yeah. There. Oh, yeah. The pre-production was the toughest part, you know, just getting all the, you know, special. That's why, um, you know, I had uh, I had a really nice lunch with Rick Baker, who did uh, the special effects American Werewolf in London. He didn't want any credit or anything. You know, he just, you know, gave me some advice and guidance on on how to pull off a, a crazy movie with all these monsters were you guys interested in using him or he was just there for advice oh god we couldn't have afforded him i mean he was he was hot after american Werewolf in london but a friend of mine had worked with him and he said well let me let me talk to rick and see if he's available you know for at least a lunch you know to kind of give you some guidance and uh yeah he, you know rick was telling me stories about uh, some of the nightmare things that he had worked on i guess uh i, I don't know what the the film it was called uh well there was uh, he told me the story about this one producer wanted him to make up this monster baby and uh, he tried and uh, to make it perfect and he says the work wasn't really that great he said i i can't i don't want you to using this monster baby in the movie and the producer said oh I, I won't and then the producer took it and put it in the movie and uh he said you know since then he's been very careful about working with new producers oh he was terrific he gave me some guidance on what i should be looking for and uh i think uh actually he helped me find uh who you know some of the team members that we used on the film do, do you remember which scenes you guys shot before every before uh, the production was interrupted Okay, well, um, it's been so long since I've seen the movie, um, but was there a scene with dead uh, pigeons? The Golden Gate Bridge pylon, there were supposed to be dead pigeons. You know, we were coming to that scene and I needed to line up, you know, these dead pigeons. So I had talked to the props people about getting, you know, prop pigeons or something. And then uh, a PA overheard me requesting these dead pigeons for this scene coming up. The PA comes up to me, and I don't want to mention names, but he said, oh, I, I, I found, uh, uh, I got you some dead pigeons. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, come on, come on over. So I, I went over, and there was this cage, you know, with, with chicken wire around it, and there were like, you know, seven or eight dead pigeons in there. And I said, where did you get these pigeons from? And he said, oh, and uh, he showed me a hose that went from uh, an automobile into this cage, and there was, he says, yeah, we, we got these pigeons in there and then we sealed it and then we just gassed them. Uh, I don't know if Statue of Libertations has, has run out. I mean, I would have never okayed that, you know, but since they were there, you know, we just threw them, threw them, you know, anyway. Relax, slow down, kid. What are you doing down here anyway? Nice little girl like you. Nothing, I'm just looking around. Just looking around, huh? For what? Dead pigeons? 
Oh, sure, yeah, that's my hobby. I collect dead pigeons, and then I press them between the pages of a book. Okay, that's enough. Beat it. And don't let me catch you down here again. Yes, sir. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun in the pre-production, which is the toughest part of a movie, getting the initial financing. Unfortunately, not realizing that all the financing was not in place. So we started shooting and ran out of money. Yeah, we were in the uh, 9000 building on Sunset Boulevard across from, uh, you know, the Rainbow. Are you familiar with that area? You know, the Roxy. So we pretty much operated out of there, you know, doing the pre-production. And then we, you know, hit the field, you know, doing, uh, doing the production. The original production company was Sync International Productions, which, you know, had no reputation. It was probably something they just got off the shelf, you know, and the office was in the 9,000 building of Sunset, which was, you know, quite imposing building. And I was like, oh, yeah, I walked in the doors and thought, oh, this is cool, you know. And eventually on, I realized that this building is probably where all the like low budget producers work from because they they're serviced offices and they don't really you know they've been there they're in there for as long as it takes to make the movie and then they they get out and there was a long queue of us at the union bank in century city um i remember uh, driving the cube to the art department cube van and practically double parking on like wilshire boulevard and running in with my paycheck and saying cash this <laughs> and there was like everyone else from the crew was in the line in front of me <laughs> we were like what's going on what's going on you know and they said oh the, the checks are bouncing and um which is not a great experience to, to have but you know um that's low budget hollywood i mean i have some sympathy for for the producers um that you know that uh but then again if you haven't got the money, don't make a movie, you know, wait till you've got enough money. Um, Do you know how long you guys shot for? Oh, God. Um, I don't know. You know, it, it uh, maybe two, three weeks. But as I said, we kind of established, you know, got the whole thing established. Because I read originally the budget was like 1.5 million. Oh, much less. <laughs> Do you know why the film kind of started falling apart or do you remember when it started falling apart like were there signs that you saw happening well signs were you know uh, i had a hard time paying the crew you know the executive producers of the first half were not releasing fun you know the funds so um, i had a you know big problem and uh, i kind of put the skids on it myself you know when when the cast and crew people were not you know getting their their pay i kind of put a kibosh on it in the in the low budget indie world, uh, that happens quite a bit because uh, people think the money's there, uh, promises are made, and then promises don't happen, and then when people are not getting paid, uh, and I've I've worked on a few pictures where I had to fight really hard, and I've shut other films down because the money that was promised never showed up, and uh, you know I work very hard. I'll shut a film down, make sure everybody gets paid, then it's a cash basis only. That's it. And then the hardest part of, of making movies is getting the money. There's a lot more talent out there than there is money. When everything went belly up and we realized we weren't getting paid, um, we hijacked the lenses, uh, me and a camera assistant, who's not on the call sheet, so I'll keep his name. <laughs> but we, we, we hijacked the lenses and we, we held them to ransom. Um, and, uh, we got, we got paid, but you know, that only, 
that uh, that got him paid, but it didn't get me paid. But he managed to he managed to get paid. Then he decided not to come back to the to the shooting because he realised that it was all falling apart. But I had to carry on working for another week because I had to get all the props back to. They told they said, "Well, we're going on hiatus," and I had had to get all the props back to the prop company and everything. So I was in a position where I had to carry on working, even though I knew this film was not gonna you know not gonna happen. Um, and then it, it, you know, it all went quiet and I didn't hear anything for several months. And about three or four months later, I, I heard, you know, through the grapevine that they were shooting something and, um, you know, I got in touch with some of the people and found there was a new production company called Cimarron and they had picked everything up. Um, and, uh, they, you know, but I, I wasn't involved at that point. I was busy doing other things. I'm Joel Stephen, also known as Joel Stephen Hammond, and I played Slasher. Well, it was, if you want to call it a cursed production, I certainly do. It, it, it had tons of problems, I'm sure many of which were behind the scenes I didn't even know about, but the ones I do know about were just red flag enough. I mean, the fact it took two and a half years after we shot it to come out, I was expecting at any time, and it just never came out. And then when it came out, it didn't come out. I mean, it, did it go straight to video? Did it hit a theater? I don't remember hitting a theater. And I'm the guy that looked, you know, for, for movies all the time. I used to pride myself on seeing everything, everything, and then writing my own top 10 list at the end of every year. So I never saw it come out. But uh, that was one. Number two, it was my first SAG film. And we didn't get SAG pay not getting SAG pay. I mean, that was my first SAG gig and it was supposed to mean something. I was supposed to hold up that check, photocopy it, frame it, put it on the wall, you know, and then it wasn't SAG pay at all. So that, that kind of left a bad taste in at least my mouth and I'm sure everybody else involved in the production as well. I was never in any other scene with any other maniacs and I believe the day of their reshoot was on a, I was on a show day. I was hosting the Rock Around the Clock show, and there was just no getting out of that. And if they had picked another day, I would have dropped and gone, but I couldn't get out that day. So they had to have somebody else put on my mask. The bad thing was I was told I could keep that mask when it was done, because, heck, who was going to fit that massive thing, you know, eight and three-quarter size mask? But they had to have somebody else wear it, and then I never got it back. If... That's all I know. I never worked with another slasher. Uh, I mean, another uh, neon maniac. That wraps up season one of In the Shadows of the Neon Maniacs. I'll be back next year with the final five episodes of this limited series. And thank you so much for all the positive feedback on iTunes and on Spotify. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for your support. And like always, I want to thank Shane McKinney for the opening and closing theme music. I also want to thank everyone for taking their time to be interviewed for this podcast. This show is written, produced, and edited by your host, Stephen Scarlatta. And until next season, stay out of the shadows.